The title simply signifies that this is the surah in which the word kaf, cave, occurs. This surah marks the beginning of the group of surahs revealed in the third period of the Prophet's Makkan life. We have divided the Makkan phase of the Prophet's life into four major periods of which some details can be found in the introduction to Surah Al-Anam. According to this division of the Prophet's Makkan life, the third period commenced around the fifth year and continued until the tenth year of his prophethood. What sets this period apart from others is that during this period the Quraysh escalated their opposition to the Prophet, peace be upon him. In the second period, the opposition of the Quraysh had been largely confined to campaigns of lampoon and ridicule, of slander and abuse, and to maliciously false propaganda against the Prophet's movement. Occasionally, they also tried to tempt or terrorize his followers. During the third period, however, the Makkans subjected the believers to violent suppression, ruthless torture, and to severe economic deprivation. This inevitably prompted a considerable number of Muslims to migrate to Abyssinia. As for those Muslims that remained, including the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his family, they were confined to the quarters called Shab Abi Talib and had to face a full-scale economic, and social boycott. Nonetheless, there were two people during this period because of whom at least two influential families of the Quraysh continued to protect the Prophet, peace be upon him. These two persons were his uncle, Abu Talib, and his own wife, Khadija. This period came to an end with the death of both of them, in the tenth year of prophethood. Shortly after, the fourth period commenced, and with it, the Muslims of Makkah were confronted with wide-scale persecution. Eventually, all Muslims, including the Prophet, peace be upon him, were compelled to leave Makkah. If one reflects over the contents of this surah, it will be evident that it was most probably revealed during the beginning of the third period of the Prophet's Makkan life. It was revealed at a time when the Muslims were facing severe persecution and a little before their migration to Abyssinia. The story of the people of the cave was narrated to these persecuted Muslims so as to raise their spirit. It was also narrated to apprise them of the sacrifices that the believers had made in the past in the cause of their faith. Subject Matter This Surah was revealed in response to three questions which were posed by the Makkan polytheists. After consulting with the people of the book, they had put these questions to the Prophet, peace be upon him, so as to test him. As for these questions, they were as follows. Who were the people of the cave? What is the true nature of the story of Khidr? What is the story of Zulkarnan? All these stories pertain to Judeo-Christian history and were scarcely known to people in the Arabian Peninsula. The people of the book had selected these stories carefully so as to test whether or not any extraordinary source of knowledge was available to the Prophet, peace be upon him. God subsequently provided adequate answers to their questions through the Prophet, peace be upon him. What is more, he hinted at how each of the three stories was significant for understanding the situation obtaining in Makkah at that time, viz. the conflict between Islam and unbelief. The following points are of special importance. 1. 
It was pointed out that the people of the cave believed in the same monotheism which was being expounded by the Qur'an. Also, the situation of the people of the cave was no different from that of the Makkan Muslims who were then being subjected to severe persecution. Likewise, the attitude towards the people of the cave by their own people was quite similar to the attitude displayed by the Quraysh unbelievers to the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his followers. Moreover, through this story, the believers are instructed that even if the unbelievers are dominant and the believers oppressed, the latter should not surrender to falsehood. Instead, they should go boldly forth and strive for their cause, putting their trust in God. In this regard, the Makkan unbelievers are told, en passant, that the story of the people of the cave is evidence in support of the doctrine of the hereafter since God had awakened the people of the cave after a long spell of death-like slumber. It clearly shows that he has the full power to raise the dead to life, a doctrine which they denied. 2. In the course of narrating the story of the people of the cave, the main story is set aside for a moment to mention the wrongdoing and injustice and the humiliation and degradation which the Muckin leaders and aristocracy had perpetrated on the small, nascent Muslim community of their town. On the one hand, the Prophet, peace be upon him, is directed neither to make any compromise with the perpetrators of wrongdoing and injustice, nor to pay much attention to affluent unbelievers in preference to his poor companions. On the other hand, the affluent unbelievers of Makkah are admonished to refrain from exulting in their ephemeral wealth and prosperity, and to seek instead virtues of abiding value. 3. The story of Khizr and Moses was recounted in the same context. The story was narrated in such a manner that it served a twofold purpose. On the one hand, the questions posed by the unbelievers were answered, and on the other, the suffering Muslims were comforted. The moral of the story is that man is in no position to plumb the depths of the wisdom of providence. It is for this reason that man stands perplexed and begins to question, out of curiosity, why things should happen the way they do, sometimes considering certain events to be shockingly atrocious. If the totality of relevant facts were disclosed to him, man would know that there is good reason for things to happen the way they do. 4. This is followed by the story of Zulkarnain. The interlocutors are informed that while people generally feel proud of their petty positions of power and eminence, Zulkarnain was singularly different. He was a great ruler and a great conqueror who controlled vast resources, and yet none of these turned his head and he remained in a state of submission to his creator. People foolishly think that they will enjoy life indefinitely, that their little palaces and mansions and orchards and the resplendent life which they enjoy intensely will endure, but not Zulkarnain. Despite the impenetrable wall that he managed to build for protective purposes, he placed all his trust in God. As long as God so willed, the wall would shield him and his people from attack. And, if and when God willed something different, the wall would be riddled by a host of cracks and holes ensuring that it would crumble to pieces. Thus the questions which had been put forward to test the Prophet, peace be upon him, were thrown back at the unbelievers who had originally posed them. Thereafter, the main points which had been mentioned at the outset were repeated in the closing part of the surah. These points affirmed that monotheism and the next life are doubtlessly truths and that it is in man's own interest to believe in them, to shape his life according to those doctrines and to live with full consciousness of his accountability to God.
Failure to do so will be to man's own detriment, and all his efforts will go to waste. In the name of Allah, the most merciful, the most compassionate. Alhamdulillah alladhi anzala ala abdihi al-kitaba wa lam yaj'al lahu iwaja Praise be to Allah who has revealed to his servant the book shorn of all crookedness Praise be to Allah who has revealed to his servant the book shorn of all crookedness This means that there is nothing in the Qur'an which being intrinsically complex and enigmatic defies understanding. Likewise, there is nothing in the Qur'an which is repugnant to truth and righteousness, making it difficult for any truth-loving person to believe in it. وَيُبَشِّرَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ الَّذِينَ يَعْمَلُونَ الصَّالِحَاتِ أَنَّ لَهُمْ أَجْرًا حَسَنًا An unerringly straight book meant to warn of a stern punishment from Allah and to proclaim to those who believe and work righteous deeds the tiding that there shall be a good reward. مَا كِثِينَ فِيهِ أَبَدًا Wherein they shall abide forever. And also to warn those who say, Allah has taken to Himself a son. And also to warn those who say, Allah has taken to Himself a son. Those who declare that God had begotten offspring include Christians, Jews, and the polytheists of Arabia. A thing of which they have no knowledge, neither nor did their ancestors. Dreadful is the word that comes out of their mouths. What they utter is merely a lie. A thing of which they have no knowledge, neither nor did their ancestors. That is, when the polytheists declare that someone is either God's son or that God has taken him as his son, such statements are not based on any dependable knowledge of which they might feel sure. People in fact are wont to make such arbitrary statements in a fit of exaggerated devotion. Little do they realize how outrageously misleading their doctrine is, nor do they fully recognize what blasphemy they utter and what fabrication they foist upon God. O Muhammad, peace be upon him, if they do not believe in this message, you will perhaps torment yourself to death with grief, sorrowing over them. O Muhammad, peace be upon him, if they do not believe in this message, you will perhaps torment yourself to death with grief, sorrowing over them. This refers to the condition of the Prophet, peace be upon him, at that time. It is evident that he was not grieved primarily because of the persecution to which he and his companions were subjected. 
What really grieved him and caused him intense suffering was the realization that while he sincerely wished to salvage his people from the doctrinal error and moral corruption in which they were steeped, they, however, showed no readiness to get out of the rut in which they were in. He, therefore, felt convinced that his people would be seized by God's scourge. For while the Prophet, peace be upon him, exerted himself day and night to save his people, they virtually insisted that God's punishment should inflict them. In a hadith, the Prophet, peace be upon him, portrays this condition in the following words. The analogy of me and the people is this, a person who lit a fire which illuminated the area around him, but this caused moths and other insects which are inclined to fall into fire to fall into it. This person tried to somehow pull them away from the fire, but they overpower him and plunge into the fire. My position is that I seek to restrain you from the fire, but you plunge into it. K. Al-Rikak Bab al-Intaha Min al-Masi The verse apparently states that the Prophet, peace be upon him, is so intensely concerned with the welfare of his people, the Quraysh, that he might lose his life. The verse, however, also contains a message of consolation for the Prophet, peace be upon him, for it also subtly tells him that he is not to blame for the failure of his people to believe and do good. It is beyond anyone's power to turn people into believers. The Prophet, peace be upon him, should therefore persevere in his mission, giving good tidings to those who believe and warning those that do not of the evil consequences of disbelieving. Surely, we have made all that is on the earth an embellishment for it in order to test people as to who of them is better in conduct. In the ultimate, we shall reduce all that is on the earth to a barren plain. In the ultimate, we shall reduce all that is on the earth to a barren plain. The earlier verse, verse 6, was addressed to the Prophet, peace be upon him, while these two verses, verses 7 and 8, are addressed to the unbelievers. After saying a word of comfort to the Prophet, peace be upon him, the deniers of the truth are told, albeit without addressing them directly, that the riches and pomp and grandeur of the world which fascinate them are all transient and are meant to test human beings. Many are misled by the opportunity to live in ease and luxury, mistakenly believing that they were created simply to enjoy the pleasures of worldly life. As a result, such people pay no heed to the counsel of sincere well-wishers. They fail to appreciate that the opportunities for enjoyment are in fact simply a means of testing how people behave. The purpose of the test is precisely to distinguish those who immerse themselves in the pleasures of life from those who remain conscious of their duty to serve their Lord and follow the right way. The day this test ends, this life of enjoyment will also be brought to a sudden close, and the earth will become merely a vast stretch of desolation. Do you think that the people of the cave and the inscription were one of our wondrous signs? Do you think that the people of the cave... In Arabic, the word kaf signifies a large cave, whereas the word ghar signifies a relatively narrow and small cave. And the inscription... There is disagreement among scholars concerning the word al-rakim. 
Some companions and successors are reported to have expressed the view that it is the name of the place where the event took place, and that it was located between Elia, i.e. the land, i.e. Aqaba, and Palestine. Some of the early commentators on the Qur'an, however, are of the opinion that Al-Rakim refers to the epitaph which was placed at the cave as a monument to the people of the cave. Molana Abu Al-Kalam Azad has expressed his preference for the former view in his work Tarjuman Al-Qur'an. He considers this to be the same place as Rakim mentioned in the Bible. See Joshua 18.27 Azad also identifies this with the ancient Nabataean city of Petra. He has failed, however, to take into account the fact that Rakim was mentioned in the Bible among the cities inherited by the Benjaminites. According to the book of Joshua, this was located to the west of the river Jordan and the Sea of Lot. Obviously, it would be out of the question for Petra to be located there, for the ruins of Petra were discovered in an area which was separated from the territory under the occupation of the Benjaminites by the territory of Judah and Edomia. It is for this reason that modern archaeologists are strongly disinclined to regard Petra and Al-Rakim as the same place. In our view, Al-Rakim signifies epitaph or the inscription on the epitaph rather than the name of any particular place. Were one of our wondrous signs? The unbelievers are being asked whether they consider it impossible to believe that God, who out of his power could bring the earth and the heaven into existence, would be unable to cause a group of people to remain asleep for 300 years and then restore them to their former state, youthful and healthy, as if they had never been subjected to such a long spell of slumber. If the unbelievers were to keep in mind God's power to create such objects as the sun, the moon, and the earth, they would never have considered that act at all difficult for God. فَقَالُوا رَبَّنَا آتِنَا مِنْ لَدُنْكَ رَحْمَةً وَهَيِّئْ لَنَا مِنْ أَمْرِنَا رَشَدًا When those youths sought refuge in the cave and said, Our Lord, grant us mercy from yourself and provide for us rectitude in our affairs. فَضَرَبْنَا عَلَىٰ آذَانِهِمْ فِي الْكَهْفِ سِنِينَ عَدَدًا We lulled them to sleep in that cave for a number of years. ثُمَّ بَعَثْنَاهُمْ لِنَعْلَمَ أَيُّ الْحِزْبَيْنِ أَحْصَى لِمَا لَبِثُوا أَمَدًا And then awakened them so that we might see which of the two parties could best tell the length of their stay. نحن نقص عليك نبأهم بالحق إنهم فتية آمنوا بربهم وزدناهم هدى. We narrate to you their true story. They were a party of young men who had faith in their Lord, and we increased them in guidance. We narrate to you their true story. The earliest evidence of this story is found in the sermons of the Christian priest James of Sarah, a work which is in Syriac. He was born a few years after the death of the people of the cave in 452 CE, and he compiled his sermons around 474 CE. This Syriac account reached the commentators of the Quran, and this explains why Ibn Jarir al-Tabari reproduced it in his commentary under different chains of transmission. 
The same account reached Europe and was subsequently translated and summarized in Greek and Latin. Edward Gibbon provided a summarized version of the story based on these sources under the title The Seven Sleepers in his Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Gibbon's account is so closely similar to the reports found in the works of the Muslim commentators of the Quran that both seem to have drawn on the same For example, the king who persecuted the people of the cave, forcing them to retire to the cave, is called Dakyanus or Dakyanus or Dakyos in Muslim sources. According to Gibbon, his name was Decius, and he ruled over the Roman Empire from 249 CE to 251 CE. His reign was notorious for the persecution of the followers of Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. The city where the incident took place is called Afsus, or Afsos, in Muslim sources, while Gibbon names it as Ephesus, which was the largest town and a famous Roman port on the western coast of Asia Minor. The ruins of this town can be found at a distance of some 20 to 25 miles from the present-day Turkish town and seaport of Izmir, Smyrna. Moreover, the emperor during whose reign the people of the cave woke up is referred to as Tedusis in Muslim sources, while according to Gibbon, the event took place during the reign of Theodosius II, who ruled over Rome from 408 to 450 CE after the Roman Empire's adoption of Christianity as its official religion. The two accounts resemble each other so closely that the person sent to town to bring food is called Yamlika by Muslims and Yamlikas by Gibbon. The story in all its details is common to both sources. In its bare outline, the story mentions that while the disciples of Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, were persecuted during the rule of Decius, the seven youths of Ephesus retired to the cave and finally woke up in the 38th year of the emperor Theodosius, for instance, in 445 or 446 CE, at a time when the entire Roman Empire had already embraced Christianity. According to this account, they remained in the cave for about 196 years. Some Orientalists have, however, cast doubt on the Quranic version on the ground that the Quran specifies the period of their stay to be 309 years. The Syriac and Quranic versions of the story differ in certain respects. Gibbon had the temerity to dub the Prophet, peace be upon him, as ignorant on account of these differences. This is bold indeed of Gibbon, who himself recognizes the Syriac work to have been composed by someone in Syria some 30 or 40 years after the event. It is evident that oral traditions usually undergo changes in the process of transmission from one land to another. Gibbon's judgment would have made some sense had the Syriac account been fully authentic and reliable. But we know that this is not the case. Hence the insistent contention that if the Quranic account varies to any extent from the Syriac account, the Quran must be wrong can only behove those whose religious bigotry has totally overwhelmed them. They were a party of young men who had faith in their Lord, and we increased them in guidance. When these youths became sincere men of faith, God enhanced their guidance and enabled them to faithfully adhere to the truth. This also gave them the strength to prefer courting all kinds of dangers as opposed to timidly surrendering before the forces of falsehood. وَرَبَطْنَا عَلَى قُلُوبِهِمْ إِذْ قَامُوا فَقَالُوا رَبُّنَا رَبُّ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ لَن نَّدْعُوَ مِن دُونِهِ إِلَٰهًا لَن نَّدْعُوَ مِن دُونِهِ 
and strengthened their hearts when they stood up and proclaimed, Our Lord is the Lord of the heavens and the earth. We shall call upon no other God beside Him. For if we did so, we shall be uttering a blasphemy. Then they conferred among themselves and said, These men, our own people, have taken others as gods beside him. Why do they not bring any clear evidence that they indeed are gods? Who can be more unjust than he who foists a lie on Allah? وَإِذْ اعْتَزَلْتُمُوهُمْ وَمَا يَعْبُدُونَ إِلَّا اللَّهَ فَأُوُوا إِلَى الْكَهْفِ يَنْشُرْ لَكُمْ يَنْشُرْ لَكُمْ رَبُّكُمْ مِنْ رَحْمَتِهِ وَيُهَيِّئْ لَكُمْ مِنْ أَمْرِكُمْ مِرْفَقًا And now that you have disassociated yourselves from them and from whatever they worship beside Allah, go and seek refuge in the cave. Your Lord will extend His mercy to you and will provide for you the means for the disposal of your affairs. And now that you have disassociated yourselves from them and from whatever they worship beside Allah, go and seek refuge in the cave. At the time when these devout youths had to flee from the towns and take shelter in the mountains, the town of Ephesus was a major center of idolatry and magic in Asia Minor. The splendid temple to the goddess Diana, which then adorned the town, was famous the world over. It attracted devotees from far-flung places who took part in rites of worship there. The sorcerers, soothsayers, and amulet writers of Ephesus were well known. Theirs was a flourishing business all over Syria, Palestine, and Egypt. The Jews, who attributed their skill in this field to the Prophet Solomon, peace be upon him, also had an important share in this business. The plight of righteous people in this atmosphere, an atmosphere charged with polytheism and superstition, was summed up in the following remark about the people of the cave. For if they should come upon us, they will stone us to death or force us to revert to their faith. Al-Kaf 18.20 وَتَرَ الشَّمْسَ إِذَا طَلَعَتْ تَزَاوَرُ عَنْ كَهْفِهِمْ ذَاتَ الْيَمِينِ وَإِذَا غَرَبَتْ تَقْرِضُهُمْ ذَاتَ الشِّمَالِ وَهُمْ فِي فَجْوَةٍ مِّنْ ذَلِكَ مِنْ آيَاتِ اللَّهِ مَنْ يَهْدِ اللَّهُ فَهُوَ الْمُهْتَدِ وَمَنْ يُضْلِلْ فَلَنْ تَجِدَ لَهُ وَلِيًّا مُقْشِدًا Had you looked at them in the cave, it would have appeared to you that when the sun rose, it moved away from their cave to the right, and when it set, it turned away from them to the left, while they remained in a spacious hollow in the cave. This is one of the signs of Allah. Whomsoever Allah guides, He alone is led aright. And whomsoever Allah lets go astray, you will find for Him no guardian to direct Him. Have you looked at them in the cave? 
In the course of this narration, mention of the youth's collective decision to take refuge in a cave in this mountainous region such that they might avoid being subjected to lapidation or compelled apostasy has been omitted. It would have appeared to you that when the sun rose, it moved away from their cave to the right, and when it set, it turned away from them to the left, while they remained in a spacious hollow in the cave. The mouth of their cave faced north, thus preventing sunlight from entering it no matter what the season, the result being that the cave remained dark and it was impossible for any passerby to observe the inmates of the cave from outside. وَتَحْسَبُهُمْ أَيْقَاظًا وَهُمْ رُقُودًا وَنُقَلِّبُهُمْ ذَاتَ الْيَمِينِ وَذَاتَ الشِّمَالِ وَكَلْبُهُمْ بَاسِطٌ ذِرَاعَيْهِ بِالْوَصِيدِ لَوْ اطَّلَعْتَ عَلَيْهِمْ لَوَلَّيْتَ مِنْهُمْ فِرَارًا وَلَمُلِئْتَ مِنْهُمْ رُعْبًا On seeing them, you would fancy them to be awake, though they were asleep. And we caused them to turn their sides to their right and to their left, and their dog sat stretching out its forelegs on the threshold of the cave. Had you looked upon them, you would have certainly fled away from them, their sight filling you with terror. On seeing them, you would fancy them to be awake, though they were asleep. And we caused them to turn their sides to their right and to their left, Even if someone were to carefully peep into the cave, he would have noticed that the seven people every now and again changed their positions. This would have made any observer believe that they were simply taking a rest rather than sleeping. And their dog sat stretching out its forelegs on the threshold of the cave. Had you looked upon them, you would have certainly fled away from them, their sight filling you with terror. The presence of a handful of people in a dark cave in a mountainous area guarded by a dog presented such an awesome spectacle that those who observed them would have run for their lives, presumably assuming them to be robbers. This was one of the main reasons why the truth about these people remained a mystery for so long. No one simply had the courage to enter the cave and find out the truth of the matter. وَكَذَلِكَ بَعَثْنَاهُمْ لِيَتَسَاءَلُوا بَيْنَهُمْ قَالَ قَائِلٌ مِّنْهُمْ كَمْ لَبِثْتُمْ قَالُوا لَبِثْنَا يَوْمًا أَوْ بَعْضَ يَوْمٍ قَالُوا رَبُّكُمْ أَعْلَمُ بِمَا لَبِثْتُمْ فَبَعَثُوا أَحَدَكُمْ بِوَرِقِكُمْ هَذِهِ إِلَى الْمَدِينَةِ فَلْيَنْظُرْ فَلْيَنْظُرْ أَيُّهَا أَزْكَى طَعَامًا فَلْيَأْتِكُمْ بِرِزْقٍ مِّنْهُ وَلْيَتَلَطَّفْ وَلْيَتَلَطَّفْ وَلَا يُشْعِرَنَّ بِكُمْ أَحَدًا Likewise, we roused them in a miraculous way that they might question one another. One of them asked, How long did you remain in this state? The other said, We remained so for a day or part of a day. Then they said, Your Lord knows better how long we remained in this state. Now send one of you to the city with this coin of yours, and let him see who has the best food, and let him buy some provisions from there. 
let him be cautious and not inform anyone of our whereabouts. Likewise, we roused them in a miraculous way. The manner in which these youths were roused from their long slumber was no less wondrous than the manner in which they were made to sleep beyond the reach of the whole world. <laughs> For if they should come upon us, they will stone us to death or force us to revert to their faith, whereafter we shall never prosper. Thus did we make their case known to the people of the city, so that they might know that Allah's promise is true, and that there is absolutely no doubt that the hour will come to pass. But instead of giving thought to this, they disputed with one another concerning the people of the cave, some saying, Build a wall over them, their Lord alone knows best about them. But those who prevailed over their affairs said, We shall build a place of worship over them. Thus did we make their case known to the people of the city. When one of those youths went to the city to buy food, a world of change had already taken place. Pagan Rome had long since been Christianized. Perceptible changes were evident in the language, culture, civilization, and dress of the people. In some, almost everything had changed. Similarly, this young man from the cave, who in fact belonged to a period about two centuries earlier, also struck everybody as an oddity, since his overall demeanor, his dress, and his language were all antiquated. So, when he presented a coin dating from the time of Decius, the shopkeeper was simply baffled and looked at him with dazed eyes. According to the Syriac traditions, the shopkeeper thought that his customer had obtained the coin by laying his hands on some hidden ancient treasure. The shopkeeper, therefore, drew the attention of people around him to this strange man, and eventually the youth was brought before the authorities. In the course of investigations, it was discovered that the youth was one of the followers of Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, who had fled some two centuries ago for fear of his faith. This news instantly spread among the Christians of the city. A huge crowd of people, accompanied by government officials, therefore, soon went to the cave. On realizing that they had been awakened from a sleep which had lasted for two hundred years, the people of the cave greeted their fellow Christians and then lay down to rest and breathe their last, so that they might know that Allah's promise is true and that there is absolutely no doubt that the hour will come to pass. According to Syriac traditions, a fierce controversy was then raging on the issue of the resurrection in the hereafter. True, most people had embraced Christianity under the influence of the Roman Empire, and as Christians, one of their articles of faith was belief in the hereafter. 
Nevertheless, Roman polytheism and idolatry and Greek philosophy still had a strong hold on the population. The result was that many people either denied or were skeptical about the hereafter. What specially reinforced this attitude about the hereafter was the influence of the Jews. A large Jewish population was evident in Ephesus, and of these the Sadducees openly denied the hereafter. The Sadducees put forward arguments drawn from the Torah in their contention against the hereafter, and Christian scholars were unable to produce any powerful and persuasive arguments to refute them. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find references to the debate between the Sadducees and Jesus, peace be upon him, on the question of the hereafter. For some reason, Jesus' contention recorded in these three Gospels is so weak that this weakness is even acknowledged by Christian scholars. Consequently, this strengthened the position of the deniers of the hereafter, so much so that even those who strongly believed in the hereafter began to entertain doubts about it. It was precisely at this moment that the people of the cave were aroused from their long sleep, an incident which provided incontrovertible proof of life after death. But instead of giving thought to this, they disputed with one another concerning the people of the cave, some saying, Build a wall over them. Their Lord alone knows best about them. The context indicates that this statement was made by a group of righteous Christians. They were of the opinion that the people of the cave should be left to lie in the positions in which they were found and that the mouth of the cave should be sealed off by erecting a wall against the side of the cave. In other words, it was not right to go about investigating about them, for their Lord knew best who they were, what their status was, and what treatment should rightly be meted out to them. But those who prevailed over their affairs, this refers to the rulers of the Roman Empire and the clergy of the Christian Church. They were so powerful that true Christians who held on to the true original doctrines of Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, made little impression on them. By the middle of the 5th century, the Christians in general and the Roman Catholic Church in particular fell prey to polytheism, saint worship, and grave worship. Shrines of saints became objects of worship and statues of Jesus, Mary, and the apostles adorned the churches, peace be upon him. In 431 CE, just a few years before the people of the cave were roused from their sleep, a synod was held in Ephesus. This council proclaimed as official doctrine of the Christian church that Jesus, peace be upon him, was God and Mary was the mother of God. Keeping this historical context in mind, it seems evident that the people mentioned in the present verse as those who prevailed over their affairs are those who, as opposed to the true followers of Christ, had become the leaders of the Christian masses and thus held the reins of religious and political affairs. It is these people who sought to promote polytheism, and it is they who decided that the burial site of the people of the cave should be turned into a shrine. We shall build a place of worship over them. Some Muslim scholars have taken this verse to mean the opposite of what it truly means. They argue the legitimacy of erecting mausoleums, monuments, and mosques on the tombs of saints. The Quran, however, considers this a bad practice and erroneous. What the Qur'an rather suggests here is that the cave should have served as a token to strengthen belief in resurrection and the hereafter, that these are realities which are bound to come to pass. It is ironic that this statement was seized upon by some people as a God-sent opportunity for engaging in polytheism, as a pretext for adding to the list of saints who could be worshipped.
This is quite evident from the context in which the above verse occurs. In fact, even if the context were disregarded, how can one use the statement to justify building mosques at the tombs of saints for this would be in flagrant opposition to many sayings of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Several of his sayings explicitly prohibit such a practice. God curse the women who visit graves and those who construct mosques at graves and illuminate them. Lo, those who preceded you made the graves of their prophets into places of worship, but I forbid you from it. God curse the Jews and the Christians who took the graves of their prophets as places of worship. Such were the people that if a pious person among them died, they constructed a temple at his grave and painted in it those portraits they will be reckoned the worst creatures on the last day. In view of these clear sayings from the Prophet, peace be upon him, how can any God-fearing person use the above Quranic statement, a statement which simply mentions an erroneous act by Christian priests and Roman rulers, as an argument in support of such a practice? It seems pertinent to mention here that in 1834, Reverend T. Arundel published his observations in Discoveries in Asia Minor. According to him, he found traces of the tome ruins of Mary and the seven youths, for instance, the people of the cave on a hillock adjoining the ancient city of Ephesus. <laughs> وَيَقُولُونَ سَبَعَةٌ وَثَامِنُهُمْ كَلْبُهُمْ قُلْ رَبِّي أَعْلَمُ بِعِدَّتِهِمْ مَا يَعْلَمُهُمْ إِلَّا قَلِيلٌ فَلَا تُمَارِ فِيهِمْ إِلَّا مِرَاءً ظَاهِرًا وَلَا تَسْتَفْتِ فِيهِمْ مِنْهُمْ أَحَدًا some will say concerning them, they were three and their dog, the fourth. And some will say, they were five and their dog, the sixth. All this being merely guesswork. And still others will say, they were seven and their dog, the eighth. Say, my Lord knows their number best. Few know their correct number. So do not dispute concerning their number, except cursorily and do not question anyone about them. Some will say concerning them, they were three and their dog, the fourth. And some will say, there were five and their dog, the sixth. All this being merely guesswork. And still others will say, they were seven and their dog, the eighth. This shows that at the time of the revelation of the Qur'an, approximately 300 years after the incident, a number of stories were in circulation among the Christians about the people of the cave. It also shows that no authentic version of the incident was available in all its details. This is understandable since the event took place long before the invention of the printing press, whereafter it would have been possible for books containing accurate information about the event to have gained general circulation. As for the time which concerns us, the main sources of information about the incident were oral ones. With the passage of time, many details inevitably became mixed up with authentic verbal reports, with the result that accounts about the incident became legendary. 
We note, however, that the Qur'an does not contradict the third statement mentioned here, which says that the people of the cave numbered seven. Hence, there are some grounds for believing that their actual number was indeed seven. Say, My Lord knows their number best. Few know their correct number. So do not dispute concerning their number, except cursorily, and do not question anyone about them. The purpose of the statement is to emphasize the fact that the number of the people of the cave is not a matter of much consequence. What is really important is the lesson to be drawn from their story. The story teaches that men of faith ought never to deviate from truth nor submit to falsehood. It also teaches that men of faith ought to place their trust entirely in God rather than in worldly resources. It also teaches that even if circumstances do not seem propitious for the truth to prosper, men of faith should still proceed in the cause of the truth, placing their trust entirely in God. The story also dispels a serious misconception. At times, people are led to the false belief that the apparent complex of causal relationships, which they call the laws of nature, are absolutely inalterable. What we call laws of nature are in fact the usual ways in which God lets things happen. He is not, however, bound by any such laws and has the power to set aside or alter these so-called laws and to do whatever He wills in flagrant contravention of the usual ways in which things happen. It is not at all difficult for God to cause someone to remain asleep for 200 years and then rouse him from it and make him feel as if he had slept for just a few hours. It is also quite easy for him to ensure that these 200 years are not allowed to have any effect on that person's age, appearance and health. All in all, then it is quite evident that it is easily within God's power to resurrect all the human beings who have ever lived on earth all at once, as has been foretold by the prophets and the scriptures. The actual historical facts relating to the people of the cave also provide a very useful lesson. They show how foolish people in all ages have been in failing to derive the right lesson from God's signs, which have been sent to serve as a means of guidance for them. In fact, they have often been further misguided by these signs. The miracle of the people of the cave should have further strengthened people's faith in the hereafter. It is a pity that this very event led people to proceed in completely the opposite direction, the net result being that they contrived yet more saints whom they could worship. These are the main lessons and points which one ought to draw from the story of the people of the cave. But instead of taking note of these, people often get embroiled in trivial and far-fetched questions. They ask, for example, what was the total number of the people of the cave? What were their names? What was the color of their dog? Such questions can only be of interest to those who concern themselves with the husk rather than with the kernel, for those interested in irrelevant details rather than in the substance. Hence, God has directed His prophet, peace be upon him, and through him, all believers, that even if others raise irrelevant questions, they should refrain from answering them nor should they waste their time on academic research pertaining to such irrelevant questions. They should rather concern themselves with substantive questions. It is presumably for this reason that God did not care to reveal the true number of the people of the cave so as not to encourage those who have a penchant for fruitless and sterile intellectual pursuits.
And never say about anything, I shall certainly do this tomorrow. Unless Allah should will it, and should you forget and make such a statement, remember your Lord and say, I expect my Lord to guide me to what is nearer to rectitude than this. Unless Allah should will it, and should you forget and make such a statement, Remember your Lord and say, I expect my Lord to guide me to what is nearer to rectitude than this. We believe this to be a parenthetical statement which is thematically linked to the preceding verse. The preceding verse states that God alone knows the exact number of the people of the cave and that it is pointless to try to ascertain their true number. One should therefore avoid wasting one's time on unsubstantive matters and should refrain from pursuits that will lead nowhere. The question is of such trivial consequence that one should not even get involved with others in such debates. At this stage, before proceedings to the next point, both the Prophet, peace be upon him, and the believers are directed not to make categorical statements as to what they would do on the morrow. For no one knows what they will in fact be able to do. One does not know at all what lies in store for the future, nor has one absolute power to do whatever one wills. So even if one were to unintentionally make any categorical statements as to what one will be able to do on the morrow, one should be instantly conscious and remember God and make one's statement conditional with God's will. In other words, one should state that one will do a certain thing provided God so wills. In like manner, a person does not know for sure whether the act he intends will be beneficial for him or whether some other action would be conducive to greater benefit. Hence, one ought to place one's reliance on God and say that one hopes God will direct one to the right judgment. They remained in the cave for three hundred years and some others add nine more years. They remained in the cave for three hundred years and some others add nine more years. This is in continuation of the statement immediately preceding the parenthetical statement. Some people will say that there were three in number and the fourth was their dog. This part of the earlier verse connects with the present verse. They remained in the cave for three hundred years and some others add nine more years. In our opinion, these figures, three hundred or three hundred and nine years, have been mentioned by way of narrating the different opinions held by people on the question. The statement, therefore, about the period of stay in the cave is not God's, but rather the varying opinions of human beings. This is substantiated by what has been said in the very next verse, in which the Prophet, peace be upon him, has been asked to say that God knows best how long they actually remained in the cave. Had God himself said that they remained in the cave for 309 years, the statement which follows would be meaningless. It is for this reason that Abdullah ibn Abbas has expressed the view that the statement is not God's. It rather merely recounts what people said on the matter. 
لَهُ غَيْبُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ أَبْصِرْ بِهِ وَأَسْمِعْ مَا لَهُمْ مِنْ دُونِهِ مِنْ وَلِيٍّ وَلَا يُشْرِكُ فِي حُكْمِهِ Say, Allah knows best how long they remained in it. For only He knows all that is hidden in the heavens and the earth. How well He sees, how well He hears. The creatures have no other guardian than Him. He allows none to share His authority. وَاتْلُ مَا أُوحِيَ إِلَيْكَ مِنْ كِتَابِ رَبِّكَ لَا مُبَدِّنَ لِكَلِمَاتِهِ وَلَنْ تَجِدَ مِنْ دُونِهِ مُلْتَحَدًا O Prophet, recite to them from the book of your Lord what has been revealed to you, for none may change his words. And were you to make any change in his words, you will find no refuge from him. O Prophet, after concluding the story of the people of the cave, another subject is introduced. In this discourse, comments are made about the problems which the Muslims of Mecca were then facing. Recite to them from the book of your Lord what has been revealed to you, for none may change his words. And were you to make any change in his words, you will find no refuge from him. This does not in any way mean that the Prophet, peace be upon him, was inclined, God forbid, to alter the Qur'an so as to placate the Meccan unbelievers and strike a deal with them. And God asked the Prophet, peace be upon him, not to do so. The fact is that this verse is directed to the unbelievers of Mecca, even though it is addressed to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who had no authority to make any alteration of his own accord to the Book of God. His task rather consisted in faithfully transmitting what had been revealed to him by God. The unbelievers had the option to accept what he had communicated to them on God's behalf or not, and those who accepted it were required to accept it in toto. If they were not convinced about the Prophet's message, then they were free to reject it. They could exercise either of these two options. It was quite out of the question, however, that the religion revealed by God could in any way be subjected to modifications, however minor, so as to suit people's fancies. This has been said in response to the unbeliever's persistent demand that the Prophet, peace be upon him, should not insist on the acceptance of his message in full. They asked the Prophet, peace be upon him, to make at least some allowance for their ancestral faith for their age-old customs and usages. What they proposed was a kind of compromise involving give and take on both sides. They suggested that such a compromise would have the benefit of averting dissension. The Qur'an frequently recounts this demand by the unbelievers and its response too is uniformly the same, to cite just one example. And whenever our clear revelations are recited to them, those who do not expect to meet us say, Bring us a Qur'an other than this one, or at least make changes in it. Yunus 1015. <laughs> وَلَا تُطِعْ مَنْ أَغْفَلْنَا قَلْبَهُ عَنْ ذِكْرِنَا وَاتَّبَعَ هَوَاهُ وَكَانَ أَمْرُهُ فُرْطًا Keep yourself content with those who call upon their Lord morning and evening, seeking His pleasure, and do not let your eyes pass beyond them. 
Do you seek the pomp and glitter of the world? Do not follow him whose heart we have caused to be heedless of our remembrance, and who follows his desires, and whose attitude is of excess. Keep yourself content with those who call upon their Lord morning and evening, seeking his pleasure, and do not let your eyes pass beyond them. Do you seek the pomp and glitter of the world? As reported by Ibn Abbas, the Quraysh elites advised the Prophet, peace be upon him, that they were not prepared to sit in the company of people of such low status as Bilal, Suhaib, Amar, Khabab, and Ibn Masud. Were the Prophet, peace be upon him, to get rid of them, then they would be willing to visit him and spend time learning about his message. In response, God tells the Prophet, peace be upon him, that he should be content with the company of those who had gathered around him merely to seek God's pleasure and to remember God at all times of the day and night. There was no good reason for him to choose for his company those whose claim to importance rested on their affluence and preference to his sincere and devoted followers. Once again, even though this directive is apparently addressed to the Prophet, peace be upon him, it is meant to give a message to the Quraysh elites who are being told that their affluence and pomp and glory in which they exulted carried no weight with God and His Messenger. As compared to them, those poor ones who were sincere and ever conscious of God were of much greater value. All this has a striking similarity to the exchange between the Prophet Noah, peace be upon him, and the notables of his nation. The latter used to tell the Prophet Noah, peace be upon him, We merely consider you a human being like ourselves, nor do we find among those who follow you except, except the lowliest of our folk, the men who follow you without any proper reason. Hud 11.27 To this the Prophet Noah, peace be upon him, replied, nor will I drive away those who believe. Hud 11.29 On another occasion he said, Nor do I say regarding those whom you look upon with disdain that Allah will not bestow any good upon them. Hud 11.31 Do not follow him. That is, one ought not to follow a person who is heedless of God, nor submit to him, nor accept his command. Here the word obedience means all this, having been used in its widest, most comprehensive sense whose heart we have caused to be heedless of our remembrance, and who follows his desires, and whose attitude is of excess. The words used in the above verse are Kana Amruhu Furta. This can be translated in more than one way. One such possibility is reflected in our translation above. The verse may, however, also be understood in a slightly different sense. It can typify the person who brazenly abandons the truth and who exceeds all moral bounds in his ruthless bid to achieve his aims. In both cases, however, the result is much the same. The lives of all those who become slaves to their base desires as a result of relegating God to oblivion become devoid of balance and proportion. To obey such a person means that one should abandon one's own sense of proportion and indulge in immoderation and stumble in all directions in one's effort to follow leaders who are not bound by any limits. إِنَّا 
وَأَعْتَدْنَا لِلظَّالِمِينَ نَارًا أَحَاطَ بِهِمْ سُرَادِقُهَا وَإِن يَسْتَغِيثُوا يُغَاثُوا بِمَاءٍ كَالْمُهْلِ يَشْوِي الْوُجُوهَ بِئْسَ الشَّرَابُ وَسَاءَتْ مُرْتَفَقًا And proclaim, This is the truth from your Lord. Now let him who will believe, and let him who will disbelieve. We have prepared a fire for the wrongdoers, whose billowing folds encompass them. If they ask for water, they will be served with a drink like dregs of oil that will scald their faces. How dreadful a drink, and how evil an abode. And proclaim, This is the truth from your Lord. Now let him who will believe, and let him who will disbelieve. It is quite clear at this point as to why the statement was made after narrating the story of the people of the cave. While recounting the events referred to above, it was mentioned that after having come to have faith in God's unity, the people of the cave rose up and proclaimed, Our Lord is the Lord of the heavens and the earth. Verse 14 Moreover, they categorically refused to enter into any compromise with their people who were immersed in doctrinal error. Instead, they resolutely proclaimed, We shall call upon no other God beside Him, for if we did so, we shall be uttering a blasphemy. Verse 14 Thus, abandoning their people and their gods, they preferred to retire into a cave despite being devoid of any support and resources. They preferred this to striking a bargain with their people at the cost of the truth. Later on, when they woke up after their long slumber, the thing that truly agitated them was the possibility of their being reverted to the faith of their erring people, a possibility which seemed catastrophic to them. See verse 20. After narrating these events, the discourse now turns to the Prophet, peace be upon him even though its true purport is to impress upon the opponents of Islam that any compromise with those who associate others with God in his divinity or who deny the truth is simply out of the question. The Prophet, peace be upon him, is directed to faithfully communicate the truth that had been vouchsafed to him from on high. Once he had done so, the people would be free both to accept it and see its good results, or to reject it and suffer the consequences. All those who accept the truth even if they be young, poor, resourceless, ordinary slaves or laborers, deserve to be considered as valuable as precious gems. As for those who are indifferent to God on account of their excessive devotion to their base desires, they should be considered as devoid of all worth even if they have a great deal of influence and an abundance of riches. We have prepared a fire for the wrongdoers, whose billowing folds encompass them. The word suradik signifies the walls of a tent. In its present usage in connection with hell, however, it seems that it denotes the extent of the reach of the flames or the heat of hellfire. The verse here says that the suradik of hellfire encompasses the wrongdoers. Some scholars consider this expression to refer to the future, in which case it would mean that in the hereafter, the hellfire would enclose them as the walls of a tent encloses the inmates of the tent. We are, however, of the opinion that the verse means that the wrongdoers who have rejected the truth have already been enclosed by this hellfire and that it is not possible for them to escape it. If they ask for water, they will be served with a drink like dregs of oil that will scald their faces. How dreadful a drink and how evil an abode! 
The word muhla has a number of meanings. According to some scholars, it means a residue of oil. According to others, it means lava, that is, the elements of the earth which have melted under excessive heat. Others consider it to mean molten metals. Some consider it to mean pus and blood. <laughs> As for those who believe and do good, we shall not cause their reward to be lost. وَيَلْبَسُونَ ثِيَابًا خُضْرًا مِّن سُنْدُسٍ وَإِسْتَبْرَقٍ مُتَّكِئِينَ فِيهَا عَلَى الْأَرَائِكِ نِعْمَ الثَّوَابُ وَحَسُنَتْ مُرْتَفَقًا They shall dwell in the gardens of eternity, gardens beneath which streams flow. There they will be adorned with bracelets of gold. will be arrayed in green garments of silk and rich brocade and will recline on raised couches. How excellent is their reward and how nice their resting place. They shall dwell in the gardens of eternity, gardens beneath which streams flow. There they will be adorned with bracelets of gold. In ancient times, kings used to wear bracelets of gold. This has been mentioned with regard to the people of paradise to emphasize that the believers will be made to don a royal dress so as to honor them. Thus, the situation of the hereafter will be altogether different from what it is in the present world. For in the hereafter, even those unbelievers who are highly placed in this world, including kings, will be made to suffer humiliation. On the contrary, righteous believers, even if they occupy humble positions in this world, will be shown the honor usually reserved for kings, will be arrayed in green garments of silk and rich brocade, and will recline on raised couches. The word araik is the plural of arika, meaning a throne shaded by a canopy. Once again, this verse underscores the truth that the honor which is accorded to royal personages will be conferred on all those who are rewarded with paradise. O Muhammad, peace be upon him, propound a parable to them. There were two men of whom we bestowed upon one of them two vineyards, surrounding both of them with date palms and putting a tillage in between. O Muhammad, peace be upon him, propound a parable to them. In order to understand the context of this parable, one would do well to recall verse 28, above which was in fact revealed in response to the arrogant attitude displayed by the Quraysh chiefs. They had disdainfully refused to sit in the company of poor and humble believers. They had expressed their readiness to listen to the Prophet's teaching only if his assembly was cleared of these ordinary poor believers. It is also pertinent at this stage to consider this parable in conjunction with another in Al-Kalam, 68, 17-33.
Furthermore, it is also useful to bear in mind the following verses, Maryam 19.73-4, Al-Mu'minun 23.55-61, Sabah 34.36, and Fusilat 41.49-50. Both the vineyards yielded abundant produce without failure, and we caused a stream to flow in their midst. So the owner had fruit in abundance, and he said to his neighbor, while conversing with him, I have greater wealth than you, and I am stronger than you in numbers. وَدَخَلَ جَنَّتَهُ وَهُوَ ظَالِمٌ لِنَفْسِهِ قَالَ مَا أَظُنُّ أَن تَبِيدَ هَذِهِ أَبَدًا Then he entered his vineyard and said, wronging himself, Surely, I do not believe that all this will ever perish. Then he entered his vineyard, that is, he entered his orchards which he considered no less than a paradise. Small, mean people are easily puffed up by worldly successes, and they tend to believe that their achievements in this world are synonymous with paradise. So great are these successes and attainments in their eyes that they hardly see any reason to strive for the attainment of paradise in the hereafter. Nor do I believe that the hour of resurrection will ever come to pass. And even if I am returned to my Lord, I shall find a better place than this. Nor do I believe that the hour of resurrection will ever come to pass. And even if I am returned to my Lord, I shall find a better place than this. They claim that if the next life really does come about, then they will be even better off. For the prosperity that they enjoy in this world, at least as they see it, is only indicative of the fact that they are God's favorites. While conversing with him, his neighbor exclaimed, Do you deny him who created you of dust, then of a drop of sperm, and then fashioned you into a complete man? While conversing with him, his neighbor exclaimed, do you deny him who created you of dust, then of a drop of sperm, and then fashioned you into a complete man? The person concerned did not deny the existence of God. In fact, the words, Wala irudditu ila Rabbi, and even if I am returned to my Lord, see verse 36, positively indicate that he did believe in the existence of God. Still, he was branded by his neighbor as one who denied God. The reason for this is that kufr does not merely consist in denying the existence of God. In addition, pride, arrogance, vainglory, and the denial of the hereafter also constitute kufr of God.
For the faith required of man does not merely consist of affirming God's existence. It also requires affirming Him as the Master, the Lord, and the Sovereign. Whoever focuses his attention exclusively upon himself, who considers his attainments, his wealth, and his high social standing not as gifts from God, but the result of his own ability and effort, who thinks that his wealth will endure, and that none has the power to deprive him of it, and who thinks that he is accountable to no one, such a person, in fact, does not believe in God in the sense in which he is required to, that is, he does not believe in Him as his Master, Lord, and Sovereign. لكن هو الله ربي ولا أشرك بربي أحدا. As for myself, Allah alone is my Lord, and I associate none with my Lord in His divinity. ولولا إذ دخلت جنتك قلت ما شاء الله لا قوة إلا بالله إن ترني أنا أقل منك ما لو وولدا. When you entered your vineyard, why did you not say, Whatever Allah wills shall come to pass, for there is no power save with Allah. If you find me less than yourself in wealth and children, when you entered your vineyard, why did you not say, Whatever Allah wills shall come to pass, for there is no power save with Allah. Whatever God alone wills comes to happen, for man does not have the power to make things happen according to his wishes. Whatever man does is only by God's aid and succor. It may well be that my Lord will give me something better than your vineyard and send a calamity upon your vineyard from the heavens and it will be reduced to a barren waste. أو يصبح ماؤها غورا فلن تستطيع له طلبا. Or the water of your vineyard will be drained deep into the ground so that you will not be able to seek it out. وأحيط بثمره فأصبح يقلب كفيه على ما أنفق فيها وهي خاوية. وهي خاوية على عروشها ويقول يا ليتني لم أشرك بربي أحدا. Eventually, all his produce was destroyed, and he began to wring his hands in sorrow at the loss of what he had spent on it, and on seeing it fallen down upon its trellises, saying, Would I had not associated anyone with my Lord in his divinity. وَلَمْ تَكُلْ لَهُ فِئَةٌ يَنْصُرُونَهُ مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ وَمَا كَانَ مُنْتَصِرًا And there was no host beside Allah to help him, nor could he be of any help to himself. هُنَالِكَ الْوَلَايَةُ لِلَّهِ الْحَقِّ هُوَ خَيْرٌ ثَوَابًا وَخَيْرٌ عُقْبًا then he knew that all power of protection rests with Allah, the True One. He is the best to reward, the best to determine the end of things.
واضرب لهم مثل الحياة الدنيا كما إن أنزلناه من السماء فاختلط به فاختلط به نبات الأرض فأصبح هشيما تذروه الرياح وكان الله على كل شيء مقتدرا O Prophet, propound to them the parable of the present life. It is like the vegetation of the earth which flourished luxuriantly when it mingled with the water that we send down from the sky. But after that, the same vegetation turned into stubble which the winds blew out. Allah alone has the power over all things. O Prophet, propound to them the parable of the present life. It is like the vegetation of the earth which flourished luxuriantly when it mingled with the water that we sent down from the sky. But after that, the same vegetation turned into stubble which the winds blew out. Allah alone has the power over all things. God grants life as well as death. He enables people to rise as well as causes them to fall. He causes the blossoming of the spring and also ordains that it will be followed by autumn. Hence, if someone happens to flourish and enjoy prosperity, he ought not to be deluded into believing that this state would necessarily last forever. It is God who has granted man all bounties, and he will be instantly deprived of them the moment God so wills. والباقيات الصالحات خير عند ربك ثوابا وخير املا Wealth and children are an adornment of the life of the world but the deeds of lasting righteousness are the best in the sight of your Lord in reward and far better a source of hope ويوم نسير الجبال وترى الأرض بارزة وحشرناهم وحشرناهم فلم نغادر منهم أحدا. Bear in mind the day when we shall set the mountains in motion and you will find the earth void and bare. On that day we shall muster all men together leaving none of them behind. Bear in mind the day when we shall set the mountains in motion. This refers to the time when the present order of things will be disrupted. The earth will lose its gravitational pull and the mountains will float about as clouds. The same point has been made elsewhere in the Quran. And you see the mountains and think that they are firmly fixed, but they shall pass by like clouds. Al-Namal 27.88 and you will find the earth void and bare. The earth will become devoid of all vegetation and of every structure. It will turn into a barren, desolate mass of land. This virtually reiterates what was said earlier in this surah. Surely we have made all that is on the earth an embellishment, for it in order to test people as to who of them is better in conduct. In the ultimate, we shall reduce all that is on the earth to a barren plain. Verses 7 to on that day, we shall muster all men together, leaving none of them behind. This includes all human beings that have ever been born from the very early beginnings till the very last moment before the day of resurrection. This includes even those infants who may have lived after birth for no more than a single breath. All human beings who ever existed will be resurrected and will be brought together at the same time.
وعرضوا على ربك صفا لقد جئتمونا كما خلقناكم أول مرة بل زعمتم أن نجعل لكم موعدا They shall be brought before your Lord, all lined up and shall be told. Now indeed you have come before us in the manner we created you in the first instance, although you thought that we shall not appoint a tryst with us. They shall be brought before your Lord, all lined up and shall be told. Now indeed you have come before us in the manner we created you in the first instance. At that moment it will be impressed on all those who had denied the hereafter that what the messengers had informed them had indeed come about. The prophets had told people that God who had created them in the first instance would bring them back to life. There were many who had refused to accept this, and it is they who will be asked on the day of resurrection whether what they had been told by the messengers of God about being raised back to life after death had been proven true or not. ووضع الكتاب فترى المجرمين مشفقين مما فيه ويقولون ويقولون يا ويلتنا ما لهذا الكتاب لا يغادر صغيرة ولا كبيرة إلا أحصاها وَوَجَدُوا مَا عَمِلُوا حَاضِرًا وَلَا يَظْلِمُ رَبُّكَ أَحَدًا And then the record of their deeds shall be placed before them, and you will see the guilty full of fear for what it contains, and will say, Woe to us! What a record this is! It leaves nothing, big or small, but encompasses it. They will find their deeds confronting them. Your Lord wrongs no one. And then the record of their deeds shall be placed before them, and you will see the guilty full of fear for what it contains, and will say, Woe to us! What a record this is! It leaves nothing, big or small, but encompasses it. They will find their deeds confronting them. Your Lord wrongs no one. No one will be wronged. It will not happen that sins which a person did not commit will find a way to his record, nor will a person be punished in excess of his actual misdeeds. And, of course, no one who is innocent will be seized and punished without justification. وَإِذْ قُلْنَا لِلْمَلَائِكَةِ اسْجُدُوا لِآدَمَ فَسَجَدُوا إِلَّا إِبْلِيسَ كَانَ مِنَ الْجِنِّ إِلَّا إِبْلِيسَ كَانَ مِنَ الْجِنِّ فَفَسَقَ عَنْ أَمْرِ رَبِّهِ أَفَتَتَّخِذُونَهُ وَذُرِّيَّتَهُ And recall when we said to the angels, Prostrate yourselves before Adam. All of them fell prostrate, except Iblis. He was of the jinn, and so disobeyed the command of his Lord. Will you then take him and his progeny as your guardians rather than me, although they are your open enemies? What an evil substitute are these wrongdoers taking? And recall when we said to the angels, Prostrate yourselves before Adam. All of them fell prostrate 
except Iblis. This is an allusion to the story of Adam and Satan. The purpose of alluding to it in the present context is to draw man's attention to a folly that he is wont to commit. That Satan is man's sworn enemy is well known, and yet man tends to turn away from God, who is clement and compassionate. Man also turns away from the prophets, who are his sincere well-wishers. Ironically enough, after turning away from God and his prophets, man falls into the trap of his eternal enemy, Satan, who has always been consumed with envy of man. He was of the jinn, and so disobeyed the command of his Lord. This means that Satan did not belong to the species of angels. Instead, he was a jinn. Accordingly, it was possible for him to disobey God's command. The Quran categorically states that the nature of angels is so constituted that they can only obey God. They do not disobey Allah and do what they are bidden. Al-Tahrim 66.6 Likewise, the angels are elsewhere described in the Quran, as never do they behave in arrogant defiance. They hold their Lord, who is above them, in fear, and do as they are bidden. Al-Nahl 16.49-50 in contrast to angels, the jinn, like human beings, are invested with free will. They are not inherently obedient. Instead, they have the freedom to choose between belief and unbelief, between obedience and disobedience. This is the point which is spelled out clearly here, that since Iblis, Satan, was a jinn, it was possible for him to choose disobedience and transgression. This clarification should put an end to the common misconceptions that Satan was an angel. Here another question naturally arises. If Satan was not an angel, why does the Quran state, and when we ordered the angels, prostrate yourselves before Adam, all of them fell prostrate except Iblis? Al-Baqarah 2.34 It must be appreciated that the command to the angels to prostrate themselves before Adam also signified that all other earthly creatures which lived in the jurisdiction of the angels should also acknowledge their subservience to man. And indeed, all creatures did actually prostrate themselves before man along with the angels. Iblis, however, refused to go along with the rest of the creatures in carrying out the order to prostrate. For the meaning of the word Iblis, see Al-Mu'minun, 23, note 73. I did not call them to witness the creation of the heavens and the earth, nor in their own creation. I do not seek the aid of those who lead people astray. I did not call them to witness the creation of the heavens and the earth, nor in their own creation. The verse puts a straight question to man. What right do the Satans have to be obeyed and served by men? For far from having any share in the creation of the heavens and the earth, they were themselves created by God. What will such people do on the day when the Lord will say, Now call upon all those whom you believe to be my partners. Thereupon they will call upon them, but they will not respond to their call, and we shall make them a common pit of doom. What will such people do on the day when the Lord will say, 
Now call upon all those whom you believe to be my partners. This is a recurring Quranic theme, that to follow someone's command and guidance other than God's amounts to associating others with God in his divinity. It is irrelevant whether one verbally brands such a being as a partner in God's divinity or not. Even if a person curses someone while following his commands in disregard of God's, he is guilty of associating him with God in his divinity. This point is best illustrated with reference to Satan's. As we know, everyone curses Satan's, but at the same time follows them. The Quran therefore charges people with associating Satan's with God in his divinity. This form of polytheism is not related to belief, it is rather linked with action. The Quran nevertheless denounces it as a form of polytheism. Thereupon they will call upon them, but they will not respond to their call, and we shall make them a common pit of doom. Commentators on the Quran have given two different interpretations of this verse. One of these is reflected in our translation of the text above. The second interpretation is that God will cause enmity among them, that is, the friendship which they enjoyed among themselves during this worldly life will change into severe enmity in the hereafter. <laughs> And the guilty shall behold the fire, and know that they are bound to fall into it, and will find no escape from it. And surely, we have explained matters to people in the Qur'an in diverse ways, using all manner of parables, but man is exceedingly contentious. What is it that prevented mankind from believing when the guidance came to them and from asking forgiveness of their Lord except that they would like to be treated as the nations of yore or that they would like to see the scourge come upon them face to face? What is it that prevented mankind from believing when the guidance came to them and from asking forgiveness of their Lord, except that they would like to be treated as the nations of yore, or that they would like to see the scourge come upon them face to face. The Qur'an has advanced all kinds of arguments and has marshaled all kinds of evidence to illuminate the truth it expounds. It has spared no device in making an appeal to people's hearts and minds. Since all available measures had been exhausted, it was not clear what prevented people from embracing the truth. Were people waiting to be seized by God's scourge? Would they only accept the truth the hard way? وما 
We raise messengers only to give good news and to warn, but the unbelievers resort to falsehood in order to rebut the truth with it and scoff at my revelations and my warnings. We raise messengers only to give good news and to warn. This verse also has two possible meanings, both of which seem valid. In one sense, the verse means that the messengers are sent by God for no other purpose than to apprise people of the good consequences of obeying God and the evil consequences of disobeying Him. It is tragic that foolish people have often failed to pay heed to these warnings and seem to be bent upon inviting God's scourge upon themselves while the messengers of God try hard to avert this. The other meaning of the verse is that if the unbelievers wanted to witness God's scourge, they need not ask the messenger, peace be upon him, to bring it forth. For the messengers are not sent to bring about God's scourge. They are rather raised to warn people about it. Who is more wicked than the man who, when he is reminded by the revelations of his Lord, turns away from them and forgets the consequence of the deeds wrought by his own hands? We have laid veils over their hearts, lest they understand the message of the Qur'an, and we have caused heaviness in their ears. Call them as you may to the right path, and they will not be guided ever. We have laid veils over their hearts, lest they understand the message of the Qur'an, and we have caused heaviness in their ears. Call them as you may to the right path, and they will not be guided ever. If someone resorts to sheer irrationality when confronted with arguments and sincere counsel, and pits falsehood, fraud, and deception against truth, and evinces no readiness in recognizing that his misdeeds will have evil consequences, then God seals his heart and mind. As a result, such people become deaf to all voices, calling them to truth and sanity. Instead of taking heed of sincere counsel, they obstinately continue towards self-destruction. They do not acknowledge that they are rushing towards the abyss of destruction until they find themselves helplessly in it. Your Lord is all-forgiving, full of mercy. Had He wished to take them to task for their doings, He would have hastened in sending His scourge upon them. But He has set for them a time limit which they cannot evade. Your Lord is all-forgiving, full of mercy. Had He wished to take them to task for their doings, He would have hastened in sending His scourge upon them. But He has set for them a time limit which they cannot evade. God does not punish the guilty instantly. Out of infinite mercy, He grants such criminals a reasonable period of respite that they may mend themselves. Out of utter folly and ignorance, many people totally misunderstand this respite they receive from God. 
they tend to believe that regardless of what they do, they will not be held to account, a belief which, of course, is totally erroneous. All the townships afflicted with scourge are before your eyes. When they committed wrong, we destroyed them. For the destruction of each, we had set a definite term. All the townships afflicted with scourge are before your eyes. This refers to the ruins and desolation of the lands of the people of Saba, Thamud, Midian, and Lot, which lay on the trade routes of the Quraysh. All these were also well known to the other tribes of Arabia. وَإِذْ قَالَ مُوسَى لِفَتَاهُ لَا أَبْرَحُ حَتَّى أَبْلُغَ مَجْمَعَ الْبَحْرَيْنِ أَوْ أَمْضِيَ حُقُبًا And recount to them the story of Moses, peace be upon him. When Moses, peace be upon him, said to his servant, I will journey on until I reach the point where the two rivers meet, though I may march on for ages. And recount to them the story of Moses, peace be upon him. When Moses, peace be upon him, said to his servant, I will journey on until I reach the point where the two rivers meet, though I may march on for ages. The narration of Moses' story, peace be upon him, here is meant to draw both the unbelievers and the believers' attention to an important fact. Those who are concerned with the external aspects of things are liable to draw false conclusions from their observations. This happens because man is not aware of the wisdom underlying the events that take place under God's dispensation. One frequently witnesses that the wrongdoers prosper, whereas the innocent suffer hardships. Those who disobey God and commit transgression live in great affluence, whereas those who obey God face adversities, that the wicked enjoy the pleasures of worldly life, whereas the virtuous live in misery. Such spectacles are quite common. Not knowing why such things happen, doubts arise in people's minds, leading them on occasion to have a totally false perception of things. Those who consciously disbelieve and are immersed in the perpetration of injustice and oppression are led to conclude that they live in a disordered and chaotic world, a world which has either no sovereign, or if there is any, one who must have become senseless or unjust. Hence, they conclude that people may go about doing what they please without fearing that they will be called to account. On the other hand, those who believe in God are heartbroken by what they see around them. It also often happens that when such believers are faced with severe tests, their faith is shaken to the core. It was in order to enable Moses, peace be upon him, to comprehend the wisdom underlying those events which generally baffle one's understanding that God slightly lifts the curtain from the reality which governs the workings of the world. In this way, Moses, peace be upon him, was able to appreciate that appearances are quite different from the reality. The Qur'an does not specify where and when this incident relating to Moses took place, peace be upon him. In the Hadith, however, we do find some information about it. For instance, there is a tradition from Aufi in which he reports a statement by Ibn Abbas according to which the incident took place after Pharaoh's drowning and when Moses, peace be upon him, had settled his people in Egypt. 
There are, however, other traditions, more authentic ones, which are found in Al-Bukhari and the other collections of Hadith which do not support the content of the tradition just mentioned. Nor do any other sources confirm that after Pharaoh's drowning that Prophet Moses, peace be upon him, ever lived in Egypt. In fact, the Quran makes it clear that after the exodus from Egypt, Moses, peace be upon him, spent all his life in Sinai, in the wilderness. Hence, there seems no reason to accept Al-Afi's report. When we reflect over the details of the story, however, two points clearly emerge. Firstly, that the Prophet Moses' experience, peace be upon him, probably belongs to the early phase of his prophethood. For it is in the earlier part of their prophetic careers that prophets stand in need of the kind of instruction given to Moses, peace be upon him, and requiring that he be exposed to certain experiences. Secondly, it also stands to reason that Moses, peace be upon him, would have been in need of such instruction at a time when the Israelites faced conditions similar to those facing the Muslims during the Meccan phase of the Prophet's life. Because of these two reasons, we presume, though the truth is known to God alone, that this story belongs to the period when the Israelites were being persecuted by Pharaoh in Egypt. At that time, Pharaoh and his courtiers, in the manner of the Quraysh aristocracy, believed that they would not be held to account because God's punishment, which, as we know, is not meted out instantly, was not in sight. It is likely that the Egyptian Muslims, i.e. the followers of Moses, peace be upon him, like their Meccan counterparts in the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, felt agitated at seeing their tormentors flourishing while they suffered grievously. How long, they asked somewhat impatiently, will this state of affairs continue? Even Moses, peace be upon him, cried out to God in these words, Our Lord, you bestowed upon Pharaoh and his nobles splendor and riches in the world. Our Lord, have you done this that they may lead people astray from your path? Eunice 10.88 If our assumption is correct, then it is probable that the Prophet Moses, peace be upon him, traveled towards the Sudan, and that the place referred to in the Quran by the expression Majma al-Bahrain, see verse 60, is located near Khartoum, where the two main branches of the Nile, the Blue Nile and the White Nile, converge. When one traces the places through which Moses journeyed in his life, peace be upon him, there is no other place than the one just mentioned where the the Bible is totally silent about all this. The event as such is, however, mentioned in the Talmud. The Talmudic version is, however, quite different insofar as it is attributed to Rabbi Jochanan, the son of Levi, rather than to the Prophet Moses, peace be upon him. According to the same report, the other person involved in the incident was Elijah. This is the same Elijah who was considered to have taken up a lie from this world to the heavens, who was subsequently made an angel and asked to look after the affairs of the world. Possibly, like other events of Jewish history which predate the Exodus, the event might not have been authentically preserved. Accretions might also have adulterated the account as has happened in the case of other events. Influenced by the Talmudic account, some Muslim scholars think that the person called Moses in the Quranic account, peace be upon him, is a Moses other than the Prophet Moses, peace be upon him. Now, there is no reason to believe that all reports mentioned in the Talmud are reliable, nor is there any prima facie reason why the Quran would narrate the story of some unknown Moses, peace be upon him, at such length. 
On the other hand, we have authentic hadiths narrated by Ubay bin Qab in which the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him mentioned Moses peace be upon him while explaining this very story. In view of all this, there is no reason for any Muslim to pay attention to the Talmudic account. The Orientalists, true to their ilk, have attempted to explore the possible sources of this Quranic story as well. After strenuous efforts, they identify three possible sources from which the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, may have composed the story and ascribed it to God's revelation. These sources are the Gilgamesh epic, the Alexandrian romance in Syriac, and the Talmudic report referred to earlier about Elijah. It is obvious that Orientalists share a common attitude, that one may be open to all assumptions except that the Qur'an is a revelation from God. That being definitely excluded, these scholars embark on this grand mission to dissect whatever was presented in the Qur'an, which in their view was definitely the work of Muhammad, peace be upon him, rather than God, and to show how each fragment had some external source. They pursue this line of inquiry so brazenly and go to such absurd lengths that one feels instinctively repelled. Ironically, they term their bigoted pursuit scholarly research. If such biased inquiry can be called knowledge or research, one might as well do without it. The true nature of their bigoted research would become fully evident if they were asked to answer the following four questions. Firstly, granted that there are similarities in the contents of the Qur'an and the contents of several ancient texts, one might nevertheless ask, is there any positive evidence to suggest that this similarity of content is the result of the Qur'anic account having been taken from other sources? Secondly, the sources mentioned as the materials for the Qur'anic stories are quite numerous. Were all such sources to be added up, they would be so numerous as to make the fully-fledged catalog of a fairly good library. Did any such library exist in Mecca at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him? And if there had been an abundance of sources from which he might have drawn his material, is there any evidence to indicate that there existed a large team of translators available to the Prophet, peace be upon him, whereby this wealth of information might have been brought to his knowledge? Now, since that it is quite certainly not the case, the allegations of borrowing simply rest on the two or three trade journeys which the Prophet, peace be upon him, took to lands outside Arabia journeys which he made a few years before his designation as a prophet. In this respect, it is pertinent to ask, did the prophet memorize whole libraries during those journeys? Additionally, how does one explain that before being designated a prophet, Muhammad, peace be upon him, never displayed any such knowledge? Thirdly, the Meccan unbelievers as well as the Jews and Christians were always on the lookout to identify possible sources of the prophet's statements. Yet, the Prophet's contemporaries were unable to point to any definite source for the Prophet's alleged plagiarism. The Qur'an frequently challenges them by emphatically stating that the Qur'an is from God alone, that its only source is revelation from God. The Qur'an repeatedly asks its detractors to come forth with whatever proof they have to show that the Qur'an is the product of the human mind. This challenge struck at the very root of their contention, and yet they failed to point to any plausible human source for the Qur'an. Not only were they totally unable to point in a persuasive manner to any specific source from which the Qur'an might have been derived, they could not produce even as much as a shred of evidence that would create any reasonable doubt about the matter. 
It is ironic that while the Prophet's contemporaries failed to point to any plausible source of the Qur'an, some pseudo-scholars of our time, animated by inveterate hostility to Islam, have the temerity to claim, a thousand and several hundred years after the Prophet's time, the so-called sources from which the contents of the Qur'an were derived. The last point to consider is the following. It is not possible for anybody to deny that there exists at least the logical possibility that the Qur'an might be the revealed word of God. It is logically possible that the information of the Qur'an provides about past events might indeed be true, whereas those reports commonly available to us about the past might be the distorted versions of oral reports or events over the centuries, and hence unreliable. It should be noted that this possibility was arbitrarily ruled out without any valid reason whatsoever. Having discarded this, all attention was focused on one assumption alone, that the material in the Qur'an was primarily drawn from oral reports and legends that were current in the region at the time the Qur'an was revealed. One wonders if this can be explained by anything other than religious prejudice and bigotry. A little reflection on the above points should convince us that much of what has been trumpeted by the Orientalists as knowledge and scholarship is far too palpably colored by bigotry to be worthy of serious consideration by students who have embarked on a quest for the truth. But when they reached the point where the two rivers meet, they forgot their fish, and it took its way into the sea as if through a tunnel. When they had journeyed further on, Moses, peace be upon him, said to his servant, Bring us our repast. We are surely fatigued by today's journey. The servant said, Did you see what happened? When we betook ourselves to the rock to take rest, I forgot the fish, and it is only Satan who caused me to forget to mention it to you, so that it made its way into the sea in a strange manner. Moses, peace be upon him, said, That is what we were looking for. So the two turned back, retracing their footsteps. Moses, peace be upon him, said, That is what we were looking for. Moses exclaimed, peace be upon him, that it was precisely the disappearance of the fish in the sea that was the significant indicator of the place where he would encounter the person whom he wanted to meet. This implies that Moses, peace be upon him, had undertaken his journey under God's direction. It is for this reason that he was informed he would encounter certain incidents which would be of special significance. He had been foretold that the place where the fish intended for breakfast would disappear would be the meeting place between him and the person he was required to meet. 
فوجد عبدا من عبادنا آتيناه رحمة من عندنا وعلمناه من لدنا علما And there they found one of our servants upon whom we had bestowed our mercy and to whom we had imparted a special knowledge from ourselves and there they found one of our servants upon whom we had bestowed our mercy and to whom we had imparted a special knowledge from ourselves according to authentic traditions this person was called khizr hence those reports which under the influence of the israelite traditions link this story with elijah are erroneous It is incorrect to think that Moses met Elijah firstly because it is opposed to the prophet's statements on the question. Secondly, Elijah was born several hundred years after the time of the prophet Moses, peace be upon him, thus casting further doubt on the likelihood of their meeting. The Quran does not specify the name of Moses' servant. According to some reports, it was Joshua, son of Nun, who later succeeded the prophet Moses, peace be upon him. قال له موسى هل اتبعك على ان تعلمني مما علمت رشدا Moses peace be upon him said to him may i follow you that you may teach me something of the wisdom which you have been taught قال انك لن تستطيع معي صبرا he answered you will surely not be able to bear with me وَكَيْفَ تَصْبِرُ عَلَى مَا لَمْ تُحِطْ بِهِ خُبْرًا For how can you patiently bear with something you cannot encompass in your knowledge? قَالَ سَتَجِدُنِي إِن شَاءَ اللَّهُ صَابِرًا وَلَا أَعْصِي لَكَ أَمْرًا Moses, peace be upon him, replied, You shall find me, if Allah wills, patient, and I shall not disobey you in anything. He said, Well, if you follow me, do not ask me concerning anything until I myself mention it to you. فَطَلَقَ حَتَّى إِذَا رَكِبَ فِي السَّفِينَةِ خَرَقَهَا قَالَ أَخَرَقْتَهَا لِتُغْرِقَ أَهْلَهَا لَقَدْ جِئْتَ شَيْئًا إِمْرًا Then the two went forth until when they embarked on the boat he made a hole in it whereupon Moses exclaimed Have you made a hole in it so as to drown the people in the boat You have certainly done an awful thing. He replied, Did I not tell you that you will not be able to patiently bear with me? Moses, peace be upon him, said, Do not take me to task at my forgetfulness. and do not be hard on me
قال اقتلت نفسا زكيه بغير نفس لقد جئت شيئا نكرا Then the two went forth until they met a lad whom he slew whereupon Moses exclaimed peace be upon him what have you slain an innocent person without his having slain anyone surely you have done a horrible thing قال الم اقل لك انك لن تستطيع معي صبرا he said did i not tell you that you will not be able to patiently bear with me قال ان سالتك عن شيء بعدها فلا تصاحبني قد بلغت من لدني عذرا Moses peace be upon him said keep me no more in your company if i question you concerning anything after this you will then be fully justified Then the two went forth until when they came to a town, they asked its people for food, but they refused to play host to them. They found in that town a wall that was on the verge of tumbling down, and he buttressed it. Whereupon Moses, peace be upon him, said, If you had wished, you could have received payment for it. قال هذا فراق بيني وبينك سأنبئك بتأويل ما لم تستطع عليه صبرا He said this brings me and you to parting of ways now I shall explain to you the true meaning of things about which you could not remain patient أما السفينة فكانت لمساكين يعملون في البحر فأردت أن أعيبها فأردت أن أعيبها وكان وراءهم ملك يأخذ كل سفينة غصبا As for the boat it belonged to some poor people who worked on the river and i desired to damage it for beyond them lay the dominion of a king who was wont to seize every boat by force wa amma alghulam fa kana abawahu mu'minayn fa khashina ay yurhiquhuma as for the lad his parents were people of faith and we feared lest he should plague them with transgression and disbelief فأردنا أن يبدلهما ربهما خيرا منه زكاة وأقرب رحما And we desired that their Lord should grant them another in his place a son more upright and more tender-hearted وأما الجدار فكان لغلامين يتيمين في المدينة وكان تحته كنز لهما وكان تحته كنز 
And as for the wall, it belonged to two orphan boys in the city, and under it there was a treasure that belonged to them. Their father was a righteous man, and your Lord intended that they should come of age, and then bring forth their treasure as a mercy from your Lord. I did not do this of my own bidding. This is the true meaning of things with which you could not keep your patience. And as for the wall, it belonged to two orphan boys in the city, and under it there was a treasure that belonged to them. Their father was a righteous man, and your Lord intended that they should come of age, and then bring forth their treasure as a mercy from your Lord. I did not do this of my own bidding. This is the true meaning of things with which you could not keep your patience. This story gives rise to a difficult and complex problem which needs to be explained. Of Khizr's three acts, all except the third are opposed to injunctions which, since man's inception, have always been an integral part of divine law. No version of the divine law permits man to damage things which belong to others, or to kill an innocent person. In fact, such injunctions are of fundamental importance. Hence, even if a person were to learn by means of revelation, ilham, that a boat will be forcibly damaged by someone in the future, or that a young person will grow into an unbeliever and commit excesses, still no one, according to all versions of divine law, has the right to damage that boat by making a hole in it or to kill that innocent person. One can, of course, claim that both these acts were committed under God's command, and hence the person concerned was not blameworthy. This contention, however, does not solve the problem, for the question as to who asked Khizr to commit those acts is not at all relevant. There is no doubt that those acts were in compliance with God's command. Khizr himself states in this very verse that it was God's mercy rather than his own volition which caused those acts. This is also confirmed by God, who clearly states that he bestowed a special knowledge upon Khizr. See verse 65. Thus, there can be absolutely no doubt that these acts were carried out in compliance with God's command. The real issue, however, is what the nature of those commands was. It is obvious that these commands were not part of the law revealed by God as an imperative for man. For doubtlessly the basic principles which form part of the Qur'an or the earlier scriptures do not permit the killing of any person who has not been convicted of a crime. Hence, the only reasonable assumption in this case is that these commands are in the nature of God's cosmic laws, laws which are merely statements of causal relationships. These laws are similar to those by which some people fall sick and then recover, which cause some to die and enable others to survive, and which lead some to their destruction but enable others to prosper. This being the nature of the commands in the present context, it is clear that they could have only been communicated to angels. For there can be no question that the angels would violate God's commands. That is so because angels, according to the Qur'an, involuntarily carry out God's commands. 
But man's position is quite different. Whether he performs an act involuntarily in accordance with the laws of nature, or does so in accordance with some inspiration, ilham, or on the basis of some special knowledge obtained from unseen sources, he will be guilty of committing a sin if his act is opposed to any of God's revealed laws. This is so because man, qua man, is responsible for carrying out God's commands in the sense of imperatives. Additionally, the principles of divine law do not permit anyone to violate any of God's laws on the grounds that he was directed by means of inspired knowledge or that he had discovered the rationale and wisdom of violating God's laws through some extraordinary supersensory means of cognition. There is complete agreement on this point among all scholars of the Sharia. Not only that, prominent Sufis are also agreed on this point. Al-Alusi has quoted extensively from the writings of prominent Sufis such as Abdul Wahab al-Sharani, Muhi al-Din ibn al-Arabi, Mujaddid i al-Fitani, Abdul Qadir al-Jilani, Junaid al-Baghdadi, Sari al-Sakati, Abu al-Hussain al-Nuri, Abu Said al-Kharaz, Abu al-Abbas Ahmad al-Dinawari, and Abu Hamid al-Ghazali. On the basis of these quotations, Al-Alusi has established that according to the Sufis, a person may not do anything against the law clearly laid down in the authoritative texts, even if he is the recipient of an inspiration which directs him to do so. Should we then assume that at least one human being, Khizr, was granted exemption from this rule? Or should we hold that Khizr was not a human being, that he was one of those creatures of God who work in consonance with God's cosmic providential will, rather than according to the injunctions of divine law? It would be logical to opt for the former position if the Qur'an had explicitly stated that the servant under whom the Prophet Moses, peace be upon him, was to receive this instruction was a human being. The Qur'an, however, does not specifically describe him as a human being. The word used by the Qur'an is abd, which simply indicates that Khizr was one of the creatures or servants of God, a word that does not necessarily signify a human being. It is significant that the same expression has been used at several places in the Qur'an for angels. Nor do we find in any authentic tradition mentioned by the Prophet, peace be upon him, of Khizr as a human being. The most authentic traditions in this regard are those which bear the following chain of transmission. Sayyid ibn al-Jubair, ibn Abbas, or Ubay bin Kaab, the Prophet, peace be upon him. The word that occurs in these traditions is Rajul, and although it is used for human males, this is not exclusively the case. The Qur'an itself uses the same word in connection with jinn. Obviously, whenever a jinn, an angel, or an invisible being appears before man, it will also do so in human form, and in this state it will also be called a human being, bashar or insan. For example, when an angel came to Maryam, the Qur'an makes the point that it appeared before her as a human being. Hence the statement by Muhammad, peace be upon him, that the Prophet Moses, peace be upon him, found a male does not conclusively establish that Khizr was necessarily a human being. The only way for us to resolve this difficulty is to consider Khizr not as a human being, but as one of the angels of God, as a creature belonging to some other species of God's creation, 
one of those who act as God's agents and carry out God's will as reflected in the laws of nature and who are not bound by the Sharia. Some earlier scholars also hold this view, which has in any case been mentioned by Ibn Kasir in his tafsir on the authority of Al-Mawaradi. وَيَسْأَلُونَكَ عَن ذِي الْقَرْنَيْنِ قُلْ سَأَتْلُو عَلَيْكُمْ مِنْهُ ذِكْرًا O Muhammad, peace be upon him, they ask you about Zulkarnan. Say, I will give you an account of him. O Muhammad, peace be upon him, they ask you about Zulkarnan. The word va and, which precedes the query about Zulkarnan, certainly connects the two parts of the verse. This makes it clear that the story of Khizr and Moses, peace be upon them, was also narrated in response to the questions that had been asked. This further corroborates our contention that the Meccan unbelievers put a number of questions to the Prophet, peace be upon him, in order to test whether he had access to any ordinary source of knowledge or not. Say, I will give you an account of him. The identity of Zulkarnain has long been a contentious issue. Early commentators on the Qur'an were generally inclined to believe that it referred to Alexander. The characteristics attributed to Zulkarnain in the Qur'an, however, hardly apply to Alexander. In the light of the latest historical evidence, contemporary commentators on the Qur'an are inclined to believe that Zulkarnain signifies the Persian emperor Cyrus. This in any case seems more plausible. Nevertheless, the information available to date does not enable us to form a definitive opinion concerning Zulkarnain's identity. Quranic statements concerning Zulkarnain clearly bring out the following four points. 1. The title, Zulkarnain, literally the two-horned, was at least familiar to the Jews. This is evident from the fact that they had instigated the Meccan unbelievers to ask the Prophet, peace be upon him, about him. One must... Therefore, inevitably turn to Jewish literature to find out who this person was or to establish which was the kingdom known as the two-horned. 2. The Quranic description also makes it quite clear that Zulkarnain must have been a great ruler as well as a conqueror for his conquests covered a vast stretch of territory extending from the east to the west and on the third side extending either to the north or the south. There were only a few such outstanding figures before the revelation of the Qur'an. So we must apply our search for the other characteristics of Zulkarnain to any one of these figures. 3. The title, Zulkarnain, may aptly be used for a ruler who, being concerned with the defense of his kingdom for the assaults of Gog and Magog, had a strong protective wall constructed across a mountain pass. In order to determine who that person was, it is necessary to find out whom the words Gog and Magog refer. It is also necessary to find out whether any such wall was ever built adjacent to the habitat of Gog and Magog, and if it was, by whom. 4. In addition to all this, the Qur'an describes Zulkarnain as a God-conscious and just ruler. In fact, in the Quranic portrayal of him, these stand out as his dominant characteristics. Let us consider the first clue regarding Zulkarnain, that he was known to the Jews. Now the information available in Jewish sources seems to apply to Cyrus. 
For according to the Bible, Daniel saw the united empire of Media and Persia before the rise of the Greeks in the form of a two-horned ram. See Daniel 8, 3:20. There was much talk of the two-horned one among the Jews, for it was he who shattered the Babylonian empire to pieces and brought about the liberation of the Israelites. See Bani Israel 17, note 8 above. The second clue also seems to a very large extent to apply to Cyrus, though not fully. His conquests undoubtedly extended as far as Asia Minor and the Syrian coastline in the west and Balkh in the east. So far, however, we have not found any trace of a north or south expedition by Cyrus, even though the Quran categorically mentions a third expedition by Zulkarnan. See verse 83. The possibility that Cyrus did undertake such an expedition, however, cannot be ruled out, for according to historical sources, Cyrus's empire extended as far as Caucasia in the north. As far as the third clue is concerned, we know almost for sure that Gog and Magog were the wild tribes of Russia and northern China who were variously known as Tartars, Mongols, Huns, and Scythians, who had carried out various raids against civilized lands. We also know that the bulwarks of Darband and Drial were built in the southern regions of Caucasia, so as to ensure defense against the incursions of these wild tribes. It has not been fully established historically, however, that those bulwarks were built by Cyrus. Arriving at the last clue, this applies most to Cyrus of all the conquerors of the world. For Cyrus was widely praised for being a just ruler, so much so that even his enemies praised him for this. The Bible's book of Ezra portrays him as a God-worshipping and God-fearing king who liberated the Israelites precisely by virtue of his devotion to God, and that he also ordered the temple of Solomon in Jerusalem to be rebuilt for the worship of God. On the basis of all the above, we would be quite justified in concluding that of all past conquerors, Cyrus comes closest to the Quranic description of Zulkarnain. However, the evidence so far available to us does not conclusively establish that Cyrus was indeed the Zulkarnain of the Quran. Nevertheless, no other conqueror comes as close to the Quranic characterization of Zulkarnain as Cyrus. Historically speaking, Cyrus was a Persian ruler whose rise to fame began around 549 B.C. Within a few years, he seized the kingdoms of Media and Lydia, Asia Minor, and later, in 539 B.C., he also conquered Babylon. This made him the supreme ruler of the region, as there was no powerful kingdom left to oppose him. His subsequent conquests extended to Sindh, Sugd, present-day Turkestan, Egypt and Libya on one side, and to Thrace, Macedonia, Caucasia, and Khawarazm in the north on the other. For all practical purposes, the civilized world of the day was under his sway. <laughs> We granted him power in the land and endowed him with all kinds of resources. He set out westwards on an expedition. 
Until, when he reached the very limits of where the sun sets, he saw it setting in dark turbid waters. And nearby, he met a people. We said, O Dhulkarnan, you have the power to punish or to treat them with kindness. Until, when he reached the very limits of where the sun sets, the limit where the sun sets, as pointed out by Ibn Qasir, signifies the extreme limit of the West. It does not mean the actual place where the sun sets. Thus, what the verse implies is that Zulkanan conquered one territory after another in a westward direction until he reached the very end of the landmass and beyond which lay the sea. He saw it setting in dark turbid waters. When the sun set in that land, it seemed as if it had set in the blackish muddy waters of the sea. If we are to assume that Cyrus was indeed Zulkarnan, then the reference would be to the western coast at the point where the Aegean Sea splits into several small gulfs. This is also supported by the Quranic use of the word Ain instead of Bahar, since the former word is more appropriately used to denote a lake or gulf rather than sea. And nearby he met a people we said, O Dhulkarnan, you have the power to punish or to treat them with kindness. The present statement does not necessarily mean that God communicated this directive to Dhulkarnan by means of revelation, wahi, or inspiration, ilham. Had that been the case, it would necessarily mean that Dhulkarnan was a nabi, prophet, or muhaddat, one to whom God spoke. It is quite possible that no actual communication took place and that it amounted to no more than making a statement of fact. This indeed seems more likely. For the situation obtaining at that time was that Zulkarnan had just established his control over that territory. For instance, that the conquered nation was firmly in his grip. At this stage, God put a question to Zulkarnan's conscience. How should he treat these helpless people? Being in full control, he could either treat them with injustice or treat them with grace and magnanimity. The situation was, thus, a test for his moral caliber. <laughs> He said, We will chastise him who does wrong, whereafter he will be returned to his Lord, and he will chastise him grievously. But as for him who believes and acts righteously, his will be a goodly reward, and we shall enjoin upon him only mild commands. Then he set out on another expedition. Until 
until he reached the limit where the sun rises, and he found it rising on a people whom we had provided no shelter from it, until he reached the limit where the sun rises, and he found it rising on a people whom we had provided no shelter from it. Zulkarnain went forth eastwards, conquering one land after another until he reached a territory which marked the end of the civilized world. The lands ahead were inhabited by slave nations who did not have the skill to construct houses, let alone even know how to pitch tents. Thus was the state of those people, and we encompassed in knowledge all concerning Zulkarnan. Then he set out on another expedition. Until when he reached a place between the two mountains, he found beside the mountains a people who scarcely understood anything. Until when he reached a place between the two mountains, the Quran later points out that the land beyond the two mountains was that of Gog and Magog. See verse 94. Hence, the mountains mentioned in the present verse are bound to have been part of the range located between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea. He found beside the mountains a people who scarcely understood anything. The language of these people was almost foreign to Zulkarnain and his companions. Being a wild people, they neither knew any other language nor did others know theirs. They said, O Zulkarnan, Gog and Magog are spreading corruption in this land. So shall we pay you taxes on the understanding that you will set up a barrier between us and them? They said, O Zulkarnan, Gog and Magog, we stated earlier, see note 62 above, that Gog and Magog were the wild peoples which inhabited the northeastern region of Asia. They constantly carried out predatory raids against civilized lands, pouring over both Asia and Europe like tidal waves. In Genesis, see chapter 10, their ancestry is traced to Japheth, son of Noah, peace be upon him. This view is also shared by Muslim historians. The book of Ezekiel, see chapters 38 to 9, states that their land was comprised of Meshech, presently Moscow, and Tubal, presently Tubalsek. The Jewish historian Josephus identifies them with the Scythians who inhabited the area lying north and east of the Black Sea. According to Jerome, the Magog lived to the north of Caucasia near the Caspian Sea. He answered, Whatever my Lord has granted me is good enough, but help me with your labor, and I will erect a rampart between you and them. He answered, Whatever my Lord has granted me is good enough, but help me with your labor and I will erect a rampart between you and them. 
Zulkarnain was conscious that as a ruler it was his duty to safeguard his people against predatory invaders. It was not proper for him, therefore, to impose any additional tax on his people for that purpose. The treasures of the land which had already been entrusted to him by God were sufficient to arrange for his people's defense. This defense would, however, still require that his people should provide him with physical help. Bring me ingots of iron. Then after he had filled up the space between the two mountainsides, he said, Light a fire and ply bellows. When he had made it red like fire, he said, Bring me molten copper which I may pour on it. Such was the rampart that Gog and Magog could not scale, nor could they pierce it. Zulkarnan said, This is a mercy from my Lord, but when the time of my Lord's promise shall come, He will level the rampart with the ground. My Lord's promise always comes true. Zulkarnan said, This is a mercy from my Lord, but when the time of my Lord's promise shall come, He will level the rampart with the ground. The other point made by Zulkarnan concerned the protective arrangements he had made. He said that even though he had built a strong protective wall to the best of his ability, there was no reason to believe that it would endure forever. As long as God willed, it would remain intact, but when the appointed time for its destruction came, nothing could avert its destruction. The expression, the appointed time of my Lord is very meaningful. This refers both to the time set by God for the destruction of the wall as well as the time appointed for the death and extinction of all, for instance, the last day. My Lord's promise always comes true. This marks the conclusion of Zulkarnain's story, the story itself being narrated in response to a query put to the Prophet, peace be upon him, by the Makkan unbelievers so as to test him. The Qur'an, however, employs this story just as it did the stories of the people of the cave and Moses, peace be upon him, and Khizr, to drive home a moral. The Qur'an emphasizes that Zulkarnain, whose glorious achievements were known to the people of the book, was not simply a conqueror, but also someone who believed in monotheism and the hereafter, and who was just and generous in his dealings with his subjects. Moreover, Zulkarnain was not a petty person who puffed up with pride as soon as he attained any success. And on that day we shall let some of them surge like waves against others, and the trumpet shall be blown. Then we shall gather them all together. And on that day, 
on that day, refers to the day of resurrection. Zulkarnan had alluded to the day of resurrection as a day that is bound to come about because God had so decided. What is being said here is in that context and is an addition to the statement made by Zulkarnan. See verse 98 above. وَعَرَضْنَا جَهَنَّمَ يَوْمَئِذٍ لِلْكَافِرِينَ عَرْضًا That will be the day we shall place hell before the unbelievers. الَّذِينَ كَانَتْ أَعْيُنُهُمْ فِي غِطَاءٍ عَنْ ذِكْرِي وَكَانُوا لَا يَسْتَطِيعُونَ سَمْعًا whose eyes had become blind against my admonition and who were utterly disinclined to hear it. Do the unbelievers then believe that they can take any of my creatures as their guardians beside me? Verily, we have prepared hell to welcome the unbelievers. Do the unbelievers... This is the conclusion of the whole surah. In order to comprehend the context of this conclusion, one should not only consider the story of Zulkarnan, but also the contents of the surah as a whole. The central point of the Surah is that the Prophet, peace be upon him, called upon his people to give up polytheism and to embrace monotheism in its place, to give up excessive devotion to the world and to base their conduct on a strong belief in the hereafter. The Meccan chiefs, thanks to the intoxication caused by their riches and eminence, spurned this call. Additionally, they persecuted and humiliated those righteous people who had accepted the Prophet's call. It is in this context that we ought to view the entire discourse of this surah. For these three stories, which the Prophet, peace be upon him, is asked about his opponents by way of a test, are narrated beautifully, and are so interwoven as to constitute an integral part of the overall discourse. With this, the three stories end, and the discourse reverts to the main subject mentioned at the outset of the surah. See verses 24-59. to 59. Then believe that they can take any of my creatures as their guardians beside me? Do the unbelievers still think, despite all that they have been told, that it will do them any good to take God's creatures rather than God as their patrons and guardians? <laughs> Say, O Muhammad, peace be upon him, shall we tell you who will be the greatest losers in respect of their works? الَّذِينَ ضَلَّ سَعْيُهُمْ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا وَهُمْ يَحْسَبُونَ وَهُمْ يَحْسَبُونَ أَنَّهُمْ يُحْسِنُونَ صُنْعًا It will be those whose effort went astray in the life of the world and who believe nevertheless that they are doing good. It will be those whose effort went astray in the life of the world. This verse may be interpreted in two ways one of which is reflected in our translation above. The other meaning could be that the efforts of the unbelievers were exclusively devoted to this worldly life. In other words, whatever they did was for the purpose of gaining worldly goods as they paid no heed to God and the hereafter. 
They mistook worldly life as their true objective, and they set their eyes on worldly success alone. Even if they believed in the existence of God, they did not care enough to find out what would please Him, nor did they care for the fact that one day they would return to God and would be required to render their account to Him. They considered themselves no different from animals, albeit endowed with rationality, animals possessed of absolute freedom, unencumbered with any responsibility, animals whose term in life had only one purpose, to enjoy worldly life to its full. Those are the ones who refuse to believe in the revelations of their Lord and that they are bound to meet Him. Hence, all their deeds have come to naught, and we shall assign no weight to them on the day of resurrection. Those are the ones who refuse to believe in the revelations of their Lord and that they are bound to meet Him. Hence, all their deeds have come to naught, and we shall assign no weight to them on the day of resurrection. No matter how great the unbelievers' worldly attainments might be, they are bound to come to an end with the end of the world itself. All that man is intensely proud of, his grand palaces and splendid mansions, his universities and libraries, his grand highways and wondrous vehicles of transportation, his great inventions and staggering industries, his magnificent arts and sciences, his impressive museums and art galleries will all be left behind at the time of man's death and will have absolutely no weight in God's scale. If anything is to be of enduring benefit to man in the next life, it will be the good deeds that he has performed, acts performed according to God's directives and with the intent of seeking God's pleasure alone. Now, if someone's objectives are confined to this worldly life, and he wishes to see his efforts bear fruit in the present world alone, then it is quite obvious that all his acts will varnish with the extinction of the world. If he seeks any recompense in the hereafter, then obviously he should seek it with regard to those acts which were performed to please God and to attain good results in the hereafter, and which were in consonance with God's command. If a person did nothing of the sort, then all his striving in this world would have gone to waste. Hell is their recompense for disbelieving and their taking my revelations and my messengers as objects of jest. As for those who believe and do good works, the gardens of paradise shall be there to welcome them. As for those who believe and do good works, the gardens of paradise. For an explanation of this, see Al Mu'minun 23, note 10. There they will abide forever with no desire to be removed from there. There they will abide forever with no desire to be removed from there. 
the inmates of paradise could never even think of going anywhere else since one cannot imagine a better state than that of paradise. Say, if the sea were to become ink to record the words of my Lord, indeed the sea would be all used up before the words of my Lord are exhausted, and it would be the same even if we were to bring an equal amount of ink. Say, if the sea were to become ink to record the words of my Lord, the word kalimat, words, here signifies God's marvelous acts and the excellent and wondrous manifestations of His power and wisdom. فَمَنْ كَانَ يَرْجُو لِقَاءَ رَبِّهِ فَلْيَعْمَلْ عَمَلًا صَالِحًا فَلْيَعْمَلْ عَمَلًا صَالِحًا وَلَا يُشْرِكْ بِعِبَادَةِ رَبِّهِ أَحَدًا Say, O Muhammad, Peace be upon him. I am no more than a human being like you, one to whom revelation is made. Your Lord is the one and only God. Hence, whoever looks forward to meet his Lord, let him do righteous works, and let him associate none with the worship of his Lord. <laughs> 